Hi, this is Evadian X, and this is The Candid Frame. As I mentioned in last week's show, I recently attended Photoshop World. And one of the reasons I like attending that show is because it gives me an opportunity to discover the work of photographers who I've never met before, but whose work is just downright amazing. And then there are other people who I've known for quite a while who I get to reconnect with. And today's guest, Nicole S. Young, is one of those photographers who I always like having the opportunity to reconnect with. She's an amazing stock and food photographer, as well as the author of several books. But what I really appreciate about Nicole is that she's in the same boat that I am. We both work for ourselves, we're our own boss, and we're always incredibly busy. And there's always something that has to get done in order for us to be able to keep the hat on our head that says that we're the boss, that we're in charge of this ship. But the thing that I admire about Nicole the most is the fact that she's oftentimes making the time to go out and create the images that she loves to make. And increasingly, that's a lot of nature and landscape images. Yes, she's going out and making these images that she does for stock, but she's always going out there and trying to make the time to make those pictures that really serve her soul. And that's a lesson that I can especially take away with because I don't do that as often as I should. And it's really it's really good to see a photographer who's as busy, if not more so than I am, who's still going out and making those photographs. And I hope that you take away not just that from our conversation, but a lot of the valuable insights that Nicole brings to the table on this episode of The Candid Frame. Well, Nicole, welcome to The Candid Frame. Thanks, Abarian X. It's good to be here. It was good to see you at Las Vegas in Photoshop World. Vegas yeah. is not one of my favorite towns, but... Uh, <laughs> I hear you. Uh, Photoshop World is is an exhausting but fun event. It's a great opportunity to, to catch up with a lot of nice people like yourself. Yeah, likewise. So I wanted to talk to you about a variety of things. And I think one of the interesting aspects about your career is like like me, you're doing a lot of things. You get a lot of balls in the air simultaneously. You're a writer, you're a photographer, you're an educator. You know, you're doing a lot of different things. So in terms of what you do as a photographer, how important is that towards for your for for the career that you've created for yourself? Well, everything that I do is based off of me, you know, becoming a photographer initially. I kind of fell into the career path of being a photographer. You know, it's something that I always enjoyed. I've always loved. Well, not always. You know, I, I guess when I initially discovered photography, uh, it was something that I'm like, okay, this is what I want to do. But I didn't really see myself actually continuing that, you know, realistically and making it a career. But it, it happened, you know, I started doing micro stock and then that grew. And then everything else just kind of, you know, kind of built on top of that. So, and because everything I do is based, you know, I write about photography or Photoshop, everything just kind of, you know, kind of there's little paths from, you know, the word photography and all these little paths go out of the word photography. And that's all of the things that I do, but they always go back, you know, it's like a big circle. <laughs> so photography is huge. It's, it's very important. I have to continually, you know, I can't just I sometimes find myself getting involved in a project like a book and it's, you know, I, I feel myself being pulled away from actually creating and uh, photos that is. And, and so I, I sometimes have to stop and then just go, okay, 
I need to go and actually use my camera this weekend because I'm, you know, I feel like I'm neglecting that part of, of who I am, even if it's not a work thing. It's like, I just have to do it. So, uh, so yeah, photography is extremely important. <laughs> so, so how do you to do that? Because you, you're facing a lot of pressures because you're, you're your own business. You don't have anybody else to, to dictate to do all, all a lot of the, the busy work that you might not like doing yourself. So how do you keep that commitment to yourself to go out and shoot when you may have a long to-do list of all these things that need to get done in terms of the book or the classes or, or whatever you're doing? How do you ensure that you get out there and make the, the pictures? Oh, yeah, that's a tough question because I, I don't, I don't always, you know, fulfill that promise to myself, I guess, you know, like I have some ideas for photos I want to create for my stock portfolio. I want to go out this weekend and go shooting and it's, it's really just a matter of doing it. You know, like I, I'm working on a book right now and I, I'm so overwhelmed with it and I'm trying to do my best to just balance everything. But I'm, I'm one of those people who cannot really focus on more than one thing at a time. So I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have a very structured brain and I, I, I'm a very organized person. And so if anything kind of gets, if I get all these things thrown at me at once, which is kind of how I feel right now, then it, it's, it's, um, I get flustered. So what I do to try and, and, you know, when I remember to do this, I guess, um, I, I write a list of all of the things that I need to do in a day. And sometimes it's just stupid things like I need to do laundry or I need to, clean my kitchen, you know, because I, I, I hate that I work from home, but I love that I work from home. It's, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult to sit. And I, I have a, a small apartment. It's like 700 square feet. And I sit basically in my kitchen, in, in my living room, and then a catty corner from my little shooting space for my food area. So I'm, I can never really get out of that environment. So when I'm sitting right here and I know that behind me, I have a very dirty kitchen that I need to clean. And, you know, and then I'm looking to my left and I have a TV that's sitting there going, watch me, you know, and then to my right, I have all these clothes that I need to put away. And I'm not a messy person, but you know, it's everybody has their, their things and you, I can't get away from that. So it's, it's hard for me to just, you know, sit here and go, okay, right now I'm going to write a chapter. Oh my gosh, I can't do that. So I, I have to write these lists and I'm like, okay, right now I'm going to focus on writing 1000 words. I'm going to do that. And then what's next on my list? Oh, I'm going to go to the store and buy some groceries, <laughs> little things like that. So I think that's, I just have to kind of organize and structure my day. Um, when I have a, a really busy schedule, like I do right now, a good amount of your work is food photography and you, you know, you, you cook, you bake, you, you're making your, the dishes that you end up photographing. Um, is that an advantage in terms of you being able to get some of that shooting done because it's, it's right there where you live? Or do you find that it's not as convenient as, as, or as it doesn't necessarily make it easier just because your kitchen is only a few feet from your desk? No, I think it makes it much easier for me. Um, that's really all I've known as far as food photography is creating the food myself and, and, and photographing it. And I've, um, I used to have a studio. I used to live in Utah. I had a small studio where I didn't have a kitchen. And that's when I was really kind of just starting my, um, really, you know, diving into doing food photography. But, I, you know, I, I think a lot of us who are f photographers, we just have this like dream studio in our head. And mine, 
always involves a kitchen because there's no way that I could take myself out of that environment of being able to, even if I was doing stuff with clients, I have to have a kitchen there. Um, but I, I do find it a lot easier. You know, sometimes I don't even expect to do a photo shoot or I, I don't expect to photograph my food. I might have everything set up, you know, which I do. I always have like a little corner of my uh, living space <laughs> that is a table and all of my things are ready to grab like, you know, diffusers or reflectors or whatever. And if I happen to cook something and I'm like, well, this is going to be really beautiful before I eat it, I'm going to take five minutes and take a few pictures. And um, so I've done that before and I've, I've created some really good stuff just from kind of the unexpected, you know, um, photo that I wasn't planning on taking. taking. So, so I, I do actually like it. I think the fact that it's my living space, you know, and like I said earlier, it's, it's distracting to have all of that there. Um, I would enjoy to have a studio that I could, you know, go to and have my computer and have basically everything except for like my couch and my bed <laughs> that I could just kind of escape from. Cause I find myself working in um, coffee shops. I'm like tonight I haven't, I haven't done, I feel like I've done no work today and it's like quarter after four. Um, I need to sit down and write. So I'm going to take my laptop and head out to a, a pub that has, um, they have plugs right at, at the booth, at all of their booths. So it's like one of my favorite places to go now. Um, I'll sit there and have a beer and get some dinner and sit there for a couple hours with my laptop, you know, so I do have to escape from that environment um, every once in a while. Yeah, I am into that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how sometimes I get so buggy just being in this house all, all day. <laughs> I, I got two dogs, but they're not the greatest conversationalists. <laughs> It's interesting about um, your beginnings as a photographer is, is, though I know that you were in the Navy and you practiced photography there, but that you sort of cut your teeth professionally as a stock photographer. Mm-hmm. And, you've, and you've talked about, you know, submitting images and getting them rejected and learning from that process. And I'm really kind of intrigued by the idea that a lot of people think that, okay, I need to build up a body of work and then start submitting it to stock and then they'll start buying it. But part of you seems to have sort of just jumped into it and then sort of learned through the process of making images, getting images submitted, getting them rejected and sort of adapting what you were doing to create images that really served stock. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about that, about that process and and how much of that was uh, part of your learning experience as a photographer? Well, I have very little formal training in photography. I, you know, I learned some in high school, a couple classes, which is really where I, I guess, discovered that photography was awesome and something I should be doing. And and then I, I when I was in the Navy, I, I was a linguist. So photography for me was still just a hobby on the side, and I was still shooting film. Um, but, you know, and then when I did go to digital, I was, I was really kind of searching for something, a way to learn. And then so I started doing microstock. And, I, you know, I think in general, and I think most people learn better when they make mistakes and that's what a lot of my learning, you know, my it was a lot of editing a photo and then finding out that I overprocessed it. Or, hey, there's artifacts in your photo. And I'm like, what are artifacts? So I, I find out what they are. And because I made a mistake and the photo didn't make it on the site, I remembered. So I, I you know, little, it was just a lot of small building blocks um, with that process that kind of built me up to where I, I, I know all of these things. I can get my photos proved faster, but it also has made me a better photographer just in general, not just a better stock photographer. Uh, you know, and a lot of it is, um, the post-processing side of things. Of course, I learned lighting a lot better from doing stock cause I wanted to learn how to light 
with a white background or just make things look better, you know, better lighting in general. But um, I really had, I learned a little bit of Photoshop in, um, I worked at a photo lab and while I was in high school and we had Photoshop there. I don't even know what version. It was like around 1997, 98. So whatever, whatever was happening at that time. And I, I would, I actually would be really interested to see what some of my um, edits and some of like, I remember Photoshopping a person out of a picture, you know, and I bet if I were to look at that now, it would just be awful. But the customer was so happy. <laughs> They're like, Oh, it's great. And they give me a tip and everything. But um, so I, I learned, you know, a little bits here and there, but then, when I was forced to actually use, I guess it wasn't really forced, but when I, I felt the need to start using digital, uh, learning raw, what, what was a raw, I didn't know what a raw photo was, a raw file. I, I think, you know, in the first probably six months, I probably just deleted my raw files because I had the JPEGs. And I was like, I don't know what these things are. I don't need them. Uh, you know, so there was a little bit of naivety at the beginning, but now it's, you know, I was like, why, why did I delete those? <laughs> you know, cause I, cause we all know the value of, of, you know, those types of files and all that stuff. Um, was it more the technical side or how much of it was the, the content of the images, especially when it comes to, to, to stock? Cause there are certain images that do better than, than others. And so how did, how, do, how was that learning experience in terms of deciding, you know, what, what kind of images you're going to make to make sure that you make, um, money from it? Well, that actually is, um, learning that specific thing and understanding what, I can create to actually sell and possibly make money, you know, from that's how I think my career really kind of took off because I learned very quickly that photographs of people do better than photographs of stuff. You know, and of course that's not true entirely. That's not like, you know, a global statement, but for me, that's what worked. And I, so I, I, I photograph people, you know, and I, that, that that was really my main goal was just okay. I'm just going to make sure people are in my images, and then um, slowly over time, I I, I started understanding uh, concepts and you know actually creating a scene and giving um, a file more than one possible use, you know, than just a straightforward image. Um, but that is what I guess built me up to actually be able to make this as a a job, a career, and make an income from it, and then. The aesthetic part, uh, the technical part, you know, kind of maybe was a little bit behind, but has, you know, eventually they kind of caught up to each other. Uh, you know, I look back at some of my older images and I'm like, oh, I really wish I could pull that out, re-edit it and then put it back in there, you know, because there are things that I notice now that I would do differently. Well, let's talk about the concepts because I think mm-hmm. it's, it's an important thing to consider because a lot of people, when they think about stock, they're often thinking of very literal images, you know, an image of a, of a cat or a, a boy holding a, a hammer or something like that. But so much of what drives the sale of stocks are, are ideas and yeah. finding images that fit into those ideas. So when you're thinking about a concept, how much of it is it tied to the various different ideas that that image could represent as opposed to just the visual that may have popped into your head? Well, you know, I will say that a lot of my images are, I probably have a lot of straightforward images and, you know, like uh, people at a doctor's office or, you know, a little kid sitting on the beach or something like that. But the ones that have more than that, you see those, um, I guess, excelling and succeeding a lot more. I have one picture that is one of my higher sellers and it's a little girl 
It's a very simple image. It's just a little girl. She's laughing. Kind of her eyes are kind of squinted. She's a sunflower. And it's, you know, when you, when you look at that image, she's smiling. She's, you know, it's happiness, joy, um, and, you know, youth. I mean, you, if you can apply a lot of conceptual terms to images and, and descriptive words to an image, then it's going to have a lot more um, length and it's going to sell better because more people are going to be able to use that file. The uh, the keywording of the images plays a big part in terms of making those images searchable. Mm-hmm. So how much does that fall on you when you're uploading the images uh, to iStock or, or whatever service that you're using to make sure that when people type in those those words that your images come up amongst the thousands that are probably mm-hmm. on that site? I have 100% um, responsibility for the keywords in my images. And, you know, it's important to make sure that I not only keyword them correctly, but I don't want to keyword them incorrectly. Cause you know, I could put, I, you can put up to 50 with, I do everything with iStock and I can have up to 50 keywords in one image. And I usually don't go all the way up to 50, just kind of depends on the image. Uh, but I, I want to think of all of the things that I could put in that photo, but that aren't too far outside of the image, you know, like I don't want to, you know, some people will, will say, well, when I look at this photo, I think of this, but I also think of this, but it's not in the photo. You know, it's like, well, you, sh- you have to keyword specifically to that image. And uh, it's sometimes people will try and spam their, you know, their keywords and they'll put, you know, like, oh, it's a picture of a little girl. Well, maybe I'll put little boy in there, too, because maybe they'll somebody looking for a little boy mm-hmm. doesn't know. That, you know, so it's it's all and it's also um, one thing that I found that is helpful is if I, when I create, let's say, a new series of images and I just want to go back and maybe see where they fall in the search. I'll do a search for a keyword and then I'll realize I just searched for a keyword that I didn't even put in my photos, you know, because I, I kind of stepped outside of that little tunnel vision I had when I was actually keywording and working on those images and realized this is a keyword that is completely applicable to this photo and all of these photos. But for some reason I didn't add it. So I, I go back and I try to refine some of my keywords. Um, I really could use, uh, it probably would be to my benefit. And I was actually just before we were on, I was actually going through some of my older photos and adding new keywords that I should have added to begin with. Um, I have a pretty large portfolio though. So it's a really big endeavor. If I were to actually go back and refine every single image, I have almost 7,000 images in my portfolio. So, this is where it'd be nice to have an assistant you know, <laughs> go through and find more keywords that you can put in there. But. So for the images that in, involve people, um, some of them may include like family and friends, but after a while you can, you know, you can only get your friends and family to volunteer for so many photographs. So when you're looking, you know, for a, a greater pool of people, where do you find them and, and walk us through uh, a, a shoot, where you've gotten the concept, you get an idea, but you want to have a certain person for it. Where do you find them? How do you how do you put together the entire shoot so that you get the image that you've been hoping to to get? Well, a lot of with what I do, a lot of the um, the people I have in my portfolio are people that I knew. They're friends, or you know, friends with kids. I like to photograph little kids, and um, so that's that's you know, obviously, like you mentioned, that's one thing. Um, another thing I found, and I'm actually not. I've moved, you know, in the last year I moved to Seattle and I've mostly been focusing on food. So I haven't really photographed people. Um, but when I was in Utah, I, I was trying to get plugged into the acting community out there 
because actors make excellent stock models because they have expression and they can take direction. So um, that's kind of, you know, I'm going to be going through this process again. I'm going to be moving to Portland and I'm going to want to plug back into finding models to, to photograph and create more images for my portfolio. And I intend to find, I guess, legitimate uh, places, you know, there's, uh, what is it? Model mayhem is one that I've used in the past. Um, but I found, and I haven't used it lately. And, and of course it's going to depend on the model. Um, I've had, you know, good and bad experiences. Well, I guess not really bad experiences, but you find a lot of inexperienced models, which isn't always a bad thing, but I'm kind of to that point where it's like, I want somebody to give me the exact expression that I'm looking for. And, Sometimes you get the, you know, the puckered lip model face the whole time. And I'm not looking at a lot of the models on there. They're not looking to be commercial models. They're looking to be, I don't know, just models, (laughs) you know, like just smiling in their photos and not necessarily having to do something in the image or pretend that they're, you know, basically acting and doing something else. So, um, so I'm going to be trying to find that source of maybe if there's an acting community that, you know, I could pull from or make friends with or, and, you know, I do pay my models. So it's, um, it's not a, you know, want people to work for free all the time, especially when I'm doing a concept that's not really something that they're necessarily going to want to hang a picture of themselves on their wall because they're, you know, like I said, at a doctor's office, you know, pretending that they're a, a nurse, you know, it's like, well, that's it's not really going to help them. It might help them there in their portfolio, but it's not really going to be like a trade like it would if there was a family who, was really okay with me using, you know, getting model releases and photographing them to use in my portfolio, and then they get free images of their family. So, you know, there are different ways to do it. And you should, we should talk about the importance of model releases. I know it's something that's always asked um, about whether or not you get model releases, but uh, for, for stock, it's, you, you have to have it. But why don't you explain why it's so important? Well, when, when I do stock photography, the people that I photograph the images that go, you know, I put them in my portfolio and then designers or whoever can license the images. Um, they have to have their likeness released so that, and, you know, legally, so that way if the, you know, designer uses them in an advertisement, then it's okay. You know, um, and and the thing with stock is that there's not necessarily a guaranteed place or way that they'll be used. There are some limitations, you know, they can't be used like, to, to imply that they have a specific disease or something like, you know, like a STD or something. They can't plaster someone's face on a billboard and say, I have herpes because that's, you know, not within the terms of the agreement with iStock. But um, the, you know, iStock needs to know that I have permission from all of these people to um, use their likeness in these photos. So that way, if the, when they end up somewhere in a commercial use, then it's okay. Now, iStock also accepts editorial images and that's, um, a different type of use, you know, that's more newspaper type use or, or a blog post. That's an, you know, just a, a newsworthy or an editorial type blog post, not a, using it commercially or anything like that. So in those cases, uh, they don't need releases. There are some limitations, um, regarding children and how many, you know, can be in a shot when it's okay. But, um, for the most part, you know, when I do stock, I really have, I really have separated my, I guess my personal work, um, from my stock work. So I don't always have releases for every single person I'm shooting, like if I'm traveling, because 
I'm not trying to do stock photography when I'm traveling. I'll use some of them as editorial images with, you know, with no model releases. It limits the amount of times it limits the saleability of the, of the file. But, um, it also, I'm there for a different reason. Um, so yeah. So then if I were on a, a specific assignment where I knew, okay, I want these to be stock photos, then I would ask for a release. You, uh, you, you wrote an ebook on, on stock photography. Yeah. And, uh, what do you think are some of the, one or two of the most important considerations people who are interested in doing stock should consider before, you know, making the leap into trying to make, make some money, um, doing stock. Well, I think that the very first thing is to not get any high hopes of it succeeding immediately. Uh, it's, it's something that I, you know, it was when it was earlier, you know, this is in 2006 when I signed on. So, um, it was not, there weren't as many people, in, on the sites and competing and uh, you know, and I'm, I can see that there is definitely a difference in the sales and things and how it works now because there are so many photographers involved. So if you do want to do stock, you really have to kind of expect to kind of work for free for a while before you're actually making a profit from your images. Um, and also when you do create images to be deliberate with your photos and I mean, I, you know, we all have photos that we created and we're like, oh, I could put this in my stock portfolio. And I have a few that have done well that I wasn't intending them to be stock, but they did be, they didn't end up being stock. But for the most part, the images that are going to actually pay my bills are going to be the ones that I, I invest time and planning and even money into them because I, you know, I, I create a shot list. I know what I want. And I, cause I, and I know what potential buyers might want to use. So being deliberate with your, um, with your actual photography. And I think that's why I've been separating out my stock from my personal work because I, I don't really lose creative freedom with my stock images, but, um, it's just different. It's, I guess I guess get into like a different kind of creative zone when I'm doing stock. Yeah. When I look at your blog and I look at your stock work, this seems to be a kind of different style in terms yeah. of what you're doing. It seems like you're more playful in terms of the images that you put on your blog, in terms of the work that you're doing with Photoshop and Lightroom and with on one software to talk about having those two different areas of, of bodies of work for yourself. Is it that stock tends to be something that really tends to look for things that are more straightforward, clean, as opposed to stuff that's maybe massaged a bit more? Well, I think it's, I think things are, are changing a lot with what buyers are looking for, but in general, that's kind of, that is kind of how I, I work. I, now when I started doing stock photography, it was really my rediscovering of photography and under, you know, and really learning about digital. So I had, you know, I was kind of, I kind of had tunnel vision with photography where everything I wanted to create, I, I wanted to fit into this stock photography idea, you know, so I, I wanted to be able to, you know, photograph people and I really wanted to do it only if I could get model releases or unless I was just with friends or something like that. Um, or I, you know, I would not photograph something or, you know, make the effort to go and photograph something because I knew it wouldn't be a good addition to my stock portfolio. So that was where I was in. I was in that kind of like 
bubble for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I slowly started getting outside of that. And now I really feel like I'm, that's why, you know, I do have them really separated because I was missing out on so many opportunities. You know, I've um, really discovered that landscape is some landscape photography is something I thoroughly enjoy. It's, it's peaceful and I can create images that everyone likes, you know, that are beautiful images I can hang on my wall and not just a photo of another person pretending to be a lawyer or whatever, <laughs> you know, the concept is. So I've I kind of allowed myself to step into, you know, into that creative world again. And with those, now when I do stock, you know, I learned how to be very clean with my editing and with my photography. So my images were, you know, I, I, I can find sensor spots and I, I, try to not have any artifacting or chromatic aberration, all these things, you know, I, I learned that so well. So that was one really good thing that I, you know, that has come out of doing stock photography. And I think they've loosened their guidelines a little bit. They're not as um, picky with some of those things. Content is really king when it comes to a stock photo. They even have started accepting mobile images. So I have images from my iPhone and my stock portfolio. Now you'll see them if you go there and sort it by age, you'll see some of my, um, you're on my iPhone shots. So, and, and for that, you know, there's tons of artifacting in those photos and they're over-processed, but if the content is good, then they're overlooking that because it's a mobile image. Um, but you know, with my, um, my personal work, like my landscape or whatever I do, I have that background of understanding how to, create a clean, beautiful image and not clip my highlights or, you know, bloom my colors. And so I take that and I know that, and then I know how far I can push it beyond that if I want to. And so it's kind of opened up a new horizon for me, you know, because I I can, I I have a little bit more flexibility with how I can actually edit my photos. I talk to photographers who practice different varieties of, of work. You know, they have one work that may get them, um, you know, an income. And then there's other work that they're really passionate and they really love. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned landscapes, but what, what is it about that personal photography that really is so exciting for you? Is it the idea that you're sort of out there and you don't know exactly what you're going to get and you find something and you're able to, to mold it into something or is it something else? What is it about it that gets you really, you know, chomping at the bit to go out there and make those kind of images. Do you, do you have an idea? Yeah, I think, I think it's the adventure and the excitement, uh, the possibility, you know, I'm, um, I went to Vietnam last year and, you know, I, I just, all I knew is I wanted to come back with one, at least one good photo every day. And I was there for three weeks and I feel like I accomplished that, you know, very few of them are going to make it into my stock portfolio, but so it's all considered personal work. And I, it's just, it's that artist, you know, that, that like it's had been starving inside of me that just, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to dismiss my photog- my stock photography as not being art or not being something I enjoy, but it, I feel that that is more of my work side of things and going out, it, you know, with friends and, or photographing a waterfall, you know, I get to, um, I'm real close to the Columbia river gorge and there are so many beautiful waterfalls out there and it is just, peaceful to hike out to one and just sit there and just 
hear the water, you know, and, and it's, it's the smells and the air and it's clean. And, um, that's, you know, that I, I enjoy that. And then I get to create beautiful photos of it. That's even better. And so it's, it's just that experience of, you know, what, what else can I, what can I find? You know, what, where can I drive to? I was looking, um, I'm getting a new tripod, uh, tomorrow. So I'm like, well, I've got to go use it this weekend. So I'm like, I'm going to go do some shooting because I've been stuck behind a computer for the last two months. And so I'm trying to decide where should I go? You know, I'm like Googling places in Seattle that I haven't been to. So it's just that it's that excitement, I think, of, of the what if, you know, what what can I find? Sometimes I create an image that, you know, I'll, I'll take a whole bunch of pictures and I'll never do anything with them. And then other times I'll find one that I'm like, I'm going to print that as a five by five foot, you know, print on my wall. So it's. Let's talk a little bit about how the software plays a role in that, in, mm-hmm. in that vision. Cause all of your images, some receive some degree of, of retouching, but uh, what I like about your work is that you use the, the software to really express your own personal vision about something. And it could be a very sort of common thing, like some of the landscapes that you've talked about, but even with some of your other images, it's always interesting to see how you use the software pretty subtly. I think that a lot of people tend to get carried away with, with what these applications are make possible to the point that it's distracting. Mm -hmm. But I think that you, you sort of strike a really nice balance uh, with what you do. So talk about what you use, but your whole sensibility in terms of your approach, in terms of using them to enhance your images rather than sort of overwhelm them with, you know, trickery. Yeah. You know, it really makes me feel good that you say that because that's kind of my goal with, um, you know, being very subtle with my images. And I think part of that stems from the stock photography side of thing, you know, with not really having the opportunity, you know, or I didn't feel like I had the opportunity to push things, but now I can. Um, I, where do I start with that? Um, I, I do a lot of editing in Lightroom and, you know, I, I, I do mostly, I don't do a lot of HDR and I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that. It's because there's so much involved. You know, I could walk through my process, but then it would just be technical and boring. <laughs> Let's talk about your use of the on one software because I've been playing around with it recently, and for me, it's it's been interesting to find certain filters that I sort of gravitate to because I feel it really sort of expresses how I am seeing the image in the first place, mm-hmm. and sometimes that is is has been really is is when I find that when I see when I see it as a tool where I see other people go, oh, this other photographer uses this particular filter a lot, and so I'm going to use it to death on every virtual, every picture that I make, regardless of whether it's appropriate for it. So I, I think what I see you doing is that you're very conscious in terms of what what a filter does, but it's informed by what you want the picture to say. And and I think that's what I'm seeing in your, in your images. So that's kind of along the lines of what I was hoping to hear you yeah. sort of discuss. Yeah, you said something there that really struck a chord with, um, like, I think when I'm creating a photo in my camera and then I sit behind my computer, I I want it to look like how I felt when I was creating the image. Hmm. You know, I may not know it at the time when I'm shooting. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I can I can look at it and go, I know exactly when I'm going to do this when I sit in my, at my computer. And sometimes I look at it and I go, you know, what am I going to do? What's What's different? 
I like I've I've learned that I enjoy using uh, split toning with my photos, uh, cross processing, but very subtly, you know, I just enough to kind of make things just a little different, but not so noticeable that it looks like you know it was just I just clicked a preset and it went you know and, and changed everything. On one software is a is a really great tool. That's something that. A few years ago, I would have never even considered using because I was in that zone of, well, I don't want to do some weird, crazy things to my photos. And I want it to be um, what I do. But using these tools, you know, on one software, Nick, all these other plugins that they have, it's kind of a way for us to rediscover and and be inspired by um, just seeing things differently. You know, I, I use Photoshop all, like every day and I could probably do everything that I do in on one software using Photoshop, but the approach is different. And when I'm using on one software and they have a lot of different products and their most popular one is, is perfect effects. And the, the filters that they have and then the presets that they have, you know, you can kind of, you can see how things are changing as they're changing. And it just kind of, you know, it's like a journey, you know, like I'll take a photo and I might know the basic things I'm going to do. Like I'm going to do my basic white balance, my, you know, tonal adjustments and things like that. And then I'm going to push it into whatever product I'm going to more like, you know, manipulate the pixels with. And and sometimes I know where I'm going to go with it. And then sometimes I'm like, I'm not sure, you know, what's going to happen. So it's like an adventure, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll try one thing. And I'll find out it didn't work. Or I'll, I'll look at all the presets that they have and I'll try one, scale it back a little bit, delete it, start over. Um, but yeah, like you said, everything that I do is all very, um, I don't, I don't want it to look sur- too surrealistic. You know, I want it to just be beautiful. And that's beauty to me. It's just, you know, subtlety. Yeah. Cause I, I've recently had the opportunity just to look at a lot of bodies of work and you get really sensitive to the fact that the technique is being emphasized much more than the content. Mm-hmm. And if you look at enough images during the course of a day or a week, you really become sensitive to that. So when you see an image that really is unique in terms of what it's trying to say or what it's trying to express or how, how, how you how you referred to it earlier, how you felt at the moment mm-hmm. that you made it, that really comes across. And that arrests me and makes me want to stop and linger out on the image. And I think that often gets lost now with so much emphasis being put on you know what the cameras do or what what a particular filter or application is capable of doing thinking that all of those things are really going to make a great image it may make a technically good image but it could be a soulless image at the same time yeah. let's talk a little about what you've been doing uh recently you, you moved from was it Colorado no, I was in Utah. Utah, and you moved to to, to, to Portland. You talked about you know, the fact that you didn't know a whole lot of people um, there, and so you had to sort of kind of start over. Yeah. When people make that kind of dramatic change, it can really throw you for a curve in terms <laughs> of what you're doing, you know, professionally. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think for a lot of people, making such leaps is something that they don't consider when they're thinking about what's happening with themselves professionally, unless of course you're, you're moving because of a job, but you had a certain support group, let's say yeah. uh, back there. And I know that you're really active on, on Google plus. So part of me is like, how much has the sort of the online community helped you in terms of making that big shift in the, you know, that big transition in terms of where you live and where you work. Right. 
Well, um, it's been a, a huge, it's made a huge difference in things. You know, I was, uh, I lived in Utah for about two and a half years and I, I actually moved there from California. I was married before when I was in the Navy. I got out of the Navy and then I got divorced and I needed to go somewhere. You know, I wasn't going to stay where I was. So um, I was living in Monterey and I knew a lot of photographers in Utah. So I was like, oh, I'll go to Utah. And it was a an excellent experience. I've made some lifelong friends and I did a lot with my portfolio. I created a lot of great images um, I that I feel like I kind of neglected, you know, some of the things out there because I wasn't doing landscape. And Utah is absolutely gorgeous, so I miss a lot of opportunities. I'll probably go back at some point and visit. But I, you know, I, I realized at one point that you know I like Utah, I like the people here, but it's not a place that I see myself living the rest of my life. So I decided to just move, and I picked Seattle <laughs> because it, it seemed it seemed interesting. You know, they have the market out here. It's close to the water. It's a cooler environment. And why not? You know, so I, I moved. Um, and I was, uh, you know, involved at the time in Twitter. I'd been a big Twitter user. And then Google Plus was still kind of new when I was moving. But I started to make a lot of friends and like really good friends uh, through Google Plus, you know, they have the Hangouts where you can do video chats and really get to know people instead of just, you know, 140 characters back and forth on Twitter. And because of that, you know, I've, um, I met uh, my current boyfriend through Google Plus and we became friends and then it just kind of grew and he moved to Portland and, you know, so we're really close. I've uh, gone on photo walks here in Seattle. I've made some friends here in Seattle and it's all because of this social networking. I don't feel like I'm alone anywhere I go. You know, I, I could decide now I'll probably end up moving. I not say probably I'm going to be moving to Portland, um, to, uh, be down there with my boyfriend, but I could just, we could decide, Hey, let's pick up and move to, I don't know, pick a place in the U S you know, there's guaranteed to be somebody there that we could connect with or, um, be in contact with or to kind of initiate us into that new environment, even if, or even for just traveling. I was, when I went to Vietnam last year, I met up with a girl who lives there. She's um, a French girl who lives in Vietnam and we met up. It was so random, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I, I, anywhere I go in the world, I don't feel like I'm alone. I feel like there's always going to be somebody that I can reach out to. So uh, that's such a big thing. You know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make, it doesn't make the it doesn't make things feel as daunting, you know, because we connect with people all over the place all the time if you want to. So moving out here as far as my I guess my photography has it, it's grown in different ways. You know, the, the it's so beautiful and the landscapes and everything. So I'm finding myself kind of gravitating towards different types of images and um, different types of photos that I want to create because now I'm in a different environment. So. In terms of how much time you dedicate to social networking, because a lot of people talk about how important social networking is, how much time do you actually dedicate to that during the course of the day, and how much of it is, and how much do you think is important in terms of what you're doing for your for your business? I try to scan through and, and keep up to date with things that are happening, uh, you know, on a daily basis. Um, like right now, I feel like I'm I'm just so busy, so I, I always tend to slightly neglect things like social media when I'm uh, in a really crazy work mode, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because it means I'm not really being distracted by something. But I don't think that social media is is 
always a distraction. You know, I think you can get a lot out of it. Uh, like I said, I've made a lot of friends and connections and, uh, you know, business partnerships through the people I've met through social networking. I do. One thing that I try to do, though, is I do try to take off the notifications on my phone, on my iPhone, because it can be, it can be very distracting, you know, when you constantly have things popping up at you and, and, uh, you know, you have a message or someone mentioned you or whatever. Um, but you know, I think it's important to, to, to not overly neglect things like that because, uh, you know, I was, was just, we were both just at Photoshop world and RC Concepcion gave a, a really great class on, um, on your, on basically on your blogs, you, you know, and, and making sure that you don't neglect your blog because, uh, we use social media a lot and it's a really great place to connect, but sometimes people overlook the fact that they still need to have their own, their own environment. And I've kind of found a way to kind of marry the two together. I use a WordPress plugin. So when I post something to Google plus, if I want, I can have it mirrored over on my blog, you know, so I have this kind of balance. Um, but you know, if you want to be, I guess, an authority in something. And this is one of the things that RC said, uh, that you need to create serialized content and continually creating something. Even if it's just a photo every once in a while uh, to get people to come back and, and see what's happening and see what you're doing. Um, and I, I've been doing that for a while and I think it's a very a good, you know, it's something that uh, everyone, that if they want to be successful in this, that they need to make sure that they are at least giving things a try. Not everyone is going to want to use Google Plus. Not everyone's going to want to use Twitter or Facebook. But um, as a business, I, as, as a business decision, I think it's smart to um, at least try them out because you never know what is going to happen and where they can lead you. Well, my last question is: I always ask my guests to recommend another photographer, and it can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So, who would that one photographer be, and why? One uh, one photographer that I've always not always, but when I, when I discovered him, I he was like my immediately my favorite photographer, uh, Gregory Crudson. Um, mm, yeah, he's his imagery is just it's it's eerie. It's um, the, the lighting is beautiful, and if I, I think I saw a documentary on him, which is how I kind of discovered who he was. He does, I believe, everything on eight by ten cameras. And it's like, it's like a, a film set. He does, it's like he's a director, basically. He has sets and actors and all of these elements. I mean, he will, you know, there's one photo that comes to mind and it's just, it's so simple yet so powerful. It's a car that's driving around a corner and it's, everything's covered in snow and there are streetlights. You know, you can see two streetlights. It just looks like it's a really small town somewhere. But um, both of the streetlights are yellow, which I don't know. There's something there's something just and I can't even really express what it is. But the fact that they're yellow, it means that it's like it's that in between, you know, but to actually create that shot, he had to um, imagine stop traffic to prevent people from tracks, putting tracks in the snow and get the utility guys to set those lights so they stay yellow the whole time. Um, you know, I'm assuming he didn't, maybe he just waited for them to turn yellow. I don't know, <laughs> but you know, he's, he's up there directing everything is huge crew of people working with him. And I think stuff like that takes, I mean, his, his, his images are beautiful, but watching the process makes you realize that there's a lot of, 
almost a lot of courage involved in doing something like that, knowing that your vision is so important to take the steps to create, you know, this big production for one photo. For one photograph, yeah. Most of us, you know, when we want to create an image, we're almost apologetic if we get in someone's way or if we get too close to something. And, you know, obviously we want to be polite and respectful, but we also, you know, you need to have a little bit of courage if you want to create an amazing image uh, or, you know, uh, maybe like take a good photo to an amazing photo. And, you know, so I think that's something that I pull away from just wa- watching him work and seeing his images. And um, it's, uh, he's, it's, I'm inspired by him and I love the fact that he still uses film. I think that's really cool. Well, thank you for that. But where can people go to find out more about all the things that you're doing? Well, I'm, I have a very uh, updated blog. It's at NicoleZblog.com. That's N-I-C-O-L-E-S-Y. And I, I have everything linked on my blog. Um, I have a contact form. If you guys, if anyone wants to contact me or ask me a question, my links to Google Plus, Twitter, everything is over there. Or if you just, if you just Google Nicole Z, you should be able to find me. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. It was a real, I really enjoyed having a chance to talk to you again. Yeah, likewise, Barry Nix. It's great to be on your show. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.